You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How are you doing, Peter? Doing great. Great. Glad to have you on here. Um, like most of our episodes now, we start these from, you know, a lot of times from listeners or guests who have recommended, you know, people to come on the podcast and that's how we found you. You've got a, a lifelong, you know, uh, work in in writing, uh, New York Times, Field and Stream, um, lots of stuff out there. We're going to talk about that today, and I, I want to hear how you got the New York Times came to be, but let's start with fly fishing. First, take us back. How'd you get into it? What's your first memory of fly fishing? Well, I guess it was 1974 or 75. I was working at National Lampoon, which was a madhouse in the... 70s a lot of drinking a lot of other stuff and uh so i i wanted to just get away from it all and took a vacation on the recommendation of one of the other editors there uh to the yucatan and we went to a place that even back in those days looked a little too you know club med or carnival cruisy to me so we drove south and went past the pyramid of tulum which was a, a pyramid and a taco stand in those days, and drove down this road, said Boca Pila, mouth of the kettle, and ended up at this Boca Pila fishing camp. And we went in, uh, they made us lunch, it was terrific, and there was a bunch of fly fishermen there. I'd never seen fly fishing. Hmm. So we stayed there. I was spin fishing at the time, kept, caught some permit, caught some bonefish on shrimp. But the real thing was I saw these guys casting, and I thought it was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. So I came back to New York City, ran into some friends who fly fished. Uh, Jeff Norman, who was an editor at uh, Esquire at the time, was a great fly fisherman. Yeah. And we went up to the Catskills. Uh, and on that first trip, I saw this guy with a great cast catching fish in an impossible place. And it turned out to be Doug Swisher. Hmm. For those of you who don't know him, he was a great um, influence in casting and fly tying uh, uh, in those days. And uh, he was given a clinic. So I took the clinic for two days. I recommend everybody takes the clinic or start out with a teacher because it's proved invaluable. If for no other reason, I learned the reach cast then, which for fly fishing is yep, the best. It is. And, uh, I, I just, the bug got me. And Lampoon started to get a little old for me. Um, and anyway, I got fired, as hmm. everyone does so. So I started to write for the outdoor magazines. Um, it was really lucky that I uh, uh, found my way into it. It was uh, Outdoor Life, 
had a really wild fellow at the time at the head. His name was John Culler, John Madison Culler. And he'd uh, won a lot of awards editing uh, South Carolina Wildlife uh, magazine. And so he was kind of new to the big time and the big three media. And he sort of liked having someone different like me. And uh, so I started to write for him. Field and Stream came along, Sports of Field. I wrote for all of them. And I got to know Nick Lyons a little bit mm. through my work. And um, so sometime in the late, let me 1980, 81, Nelson Bryant was the New York Times outdoors columnist at the time. And he was cutting back. And it was a three times a week column. And uh, they had asked Nick to write it. I don't know if you, uh, your readers remember Nick wrote the seasonable angler page, uh, the last page of Fly Fisherman, which was a Bible for all of us or a psalm. And uh, Nick uh, had a full plate at the time. He was also a professor. So he recommended me. And that was the beginning of a really wonderful experience. The Times pretty much let me write what I wanted. Um, they, they didn't, you know, edit it too much. And when they did, they made it better. And uh, I, ju I just love doing it. Wow. Well, that's a, uh, yeah, that's a lot to pack in there. The New York Times, Nick Lyons. Um, in, I love how getting started, you mentioned the, the fishing, the fly fishing clinic. Um, I'm curious on the, the clinic. What was that? Was that like a two-day clinic? We've been doing some of our own clinics in schools, and I agree with you. I think it's really important. What, what was that first clinic like? Well, basically, we cast a lot on the lawn. Yeah. You know, we had to put like a handkerchief or a bandana down, you know, like 30, 40 feet away and hit it. Um, and uh, he, he was just very good. I mean, uh, Doug, of course, could throw the whole line. But yep. I learned how to cast. I'm still learning how to cast. Uh, I learned about the double hole. Hmm. Like I said, the reach cast. Uh, and he had a few others, a curve cast, uh, but basically it was, it was the basic, uh, fly cast and basic back cast. Um, and he had more of a Western style by that. I mean, it wasn't the straight up and down with the book under your arm and it was more kind of open, you know, arm, uh, kind of like lefty cray as well. Oh, right. A little bit more open. And, and so that was, so yeah, so that clinic was Doug Swisher basically on the lawn. You guys weren't on the water. Was it kind of all like a day session on the lawn? Well, no, I think we did a half day on the water. Mm. Okay. There you go. Half day on the water with Doug Swisher. That's pretty, yeah, he's one of the, I guess it was at um, Swisher and Richards. Was that the book? One That's of, right. Yeah. I, think, I think the book was Selective Trout. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get a link in the show notes to that, to that book. And so people and can you know how yeah. guys come in and out of fashion. So at that point in time, Doug really liked the Matuka, mm. uh, which is a streamer um, sort of with uh, a hackle palmered through the length of a flank feather. Right. And a big head, like a big, um, like a Matuka sculpin sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Nice. And what was the, so National Lampoons, when I hear National Lampoon, I think of like Chevy Chase, <laughs> Chevy Chase and the National, you know, the Lampoon sort of. You know, well, that, movie that, is that a connection? Is that the same thing? Well, yeah, the Lampoon at the time, uh, we also had a radio show, a radio hour, and the cast on the radio hour, uh, included uh, Bill Murray, oh wow, uh, John Belushi, Gilda Radner, Brian Doyle Murray, um, Paul Schaefer, yeah, of course, David Letterman, 
and we all used to hang together. We had this uh, editor's lounge, uh, not much of a lounge. There was a couple of chairs. So you hung out with Bill Murray and the crew? Oh, yeah. What was that like hanging out with Bill Murray and those folks? Uh, he was a nice guy. Um, remember him sitting around the lounge? He used to, you know, in the wintertime, somehow, for some reason, he used to you know, like put his, his coat on backwards or like use it, just put it over his shoulders, but backwards. So it covered his front. Oh, right. And we all liked uh, uh, baseball, you know, uh, well, I guess Belushi and, well, and Gilda and Bill all came out of Second City in Chicago. Uh, and it was just, it, basically, we just try to make each other laugh all day. We also try to make, find one person who was wasn't partic- feel, who was feeling particularly vulnerable vulnerable mm-hmm. that day. And we'd all pile on. That was a great sport there. Um, <laughs> and then we'd go about four o'clock in the afternoon to this Japanese restaurant around the corner, uh, the Robata. And we would drink. Yep. I discovered there's no upper limit to how many martinis a young man can put away. Right. Wow. So this is, and of course, you know, I think uh, like Belushi, you know, I mean, he's got the, hey, I think he died because of drugs. I mean, they, they, a lot of people took it to the extreme on that stuff. What was, what kept you out of going down that road of, or maybe you did go down the extreme road, but you hear about some of these crazy stories with people that he, you know, passed away from going too far. John did a, what was called a speedball, you know, I think an injected heroin cocktail, and that's what got him. Mm. Um, Doug Kenny, who was one of the founding editors who wrote Animal House, for example, um, he fell off a cliff in Miami, uh, in in Hawaii. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I was just into your garden smoking weed. Uh, having cocktails, uh, cocaine sort of came in towards the end of my tenure there. And, uh, uh, you know, we all thought it made us smarter, which mm-hmm. it didn't. No. Um, and th- that was the whole deal. Right. So, so you survived the national lampoon period. So basically it was, you were a writer there. So you wrote for like some of the, what, what were the publications that came out of that? The main one was national lampoon. Uh, I was an editor. I was also the managing editor for a year. Uh, most of the magazine was put out, it was written by eight people. We used to sit around and talk. We'd spend more time picking the cover than uh, writing <laughs> stories in the magazine. And I would say I was a good AAA writer. We had uh, some real major leaguers there. And uh, so that was that. Wow. We made some great lifelong friends. Today's episode is sponsored by Daiichi Fishing Hooks, a leader in the fly fishing industry and still the world's sharpest hook. Tempered with carbon-rich steel, Daiichi offers superior penetration without compromising the hook's structural integrity. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com Daiichi and check out what they have going and check out these killer hooks. That's Daiichi, D-A-I-I-C-H-I. Do you still hear from any of, I mean, I guess some of those people are still out there. Do you have any connection to Bill Murray or any of those folks from the Lampoon days? Well, Bill, you know, I lost touch with Bill after he became a big star in Hollywood. Yeah. And, uh, but what happened a few years, my brother and I created a, a, a show called the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. 
uh, at the Kennedy Center, and we produced that for 20 years. And I think maybe it was 2017, we honored Bill. Mm. So I saw him a bunch then, and he was the same Bill Murray. And his brother Brian was there, and uh, Jane Curtin showed up. It was a pretty terrific show. Wow. So you made that change you mentioned from National Lampoon getting fired there and then going over into the, so basically the New York Times was the next big gig. And when you went to the New York Times, was that, did you start writing mostly outdoor or was a lot of different things? No. Well, it was a few years that I got the Times because it took a while to get known uh, writing for the big three at the time, Sports of Field, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life. Mm -hmm. And that's how Nick found me. And and that's how I, I got to the Times. So the first stuff I wrote for the Times was outdoors. It was a mix of fishing and hunting um and i but you know i wasn't that much of a, a hunter um never shot a deer largely because the few times i went i got buck buck fever when i had a deer in my sights <laughs> i enjoyed grouse hunting woodcock waterfowl but uh i also discovered there was amazing saltwater fly fishing in the northeast and and, and in new york harbor i'm a better fly caster than i am a wing shot so after a few years, I only wrote about fishing, and I'd say 90% of it was fly fishing. Hmm. And while writing for the Times, the outdoors column, I always I always put some food in the story. Uh, was I found that even if it's a Snickers bar, bar, food in a story leaps off the page like your own name. Hmm. One year I did a series for the Times uh, called A Season on the Harbor, and uh, every month, I uh, fished in another place in New York City waters and wrote a little bit about the history of it and the fishery there. And uh, so the last story of the year, I was having Christmas lunch with my uh, college roommate, which we did every year. And um, I knew Michael LaMonico. He was the chef at 21 Club, a pretty famous ritzy place at the time. I didn't know him as a because I wasn't in the food business. I knew him um, through fishing, through a mutual friend. Uh, I, he knew I was a fisherman. I recommended some tackle so he could take his son fishing. So anyway, last the the December column, uh, I uh, uh, took my daughter black fishing, tautog fishing on a party boat out of Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn. And we caught a mess of blackfish. And I wrote to Michael, uh, and I said, I want to have lunch with my roommate, and I can bring you all these blackfish. You can cook us some and sell the rest. And he said, sure. So I showed up at um, the 21 Club. I'm waiting to check in. With I have my little igloo cooler with the fillets in it. And standing behind me is Frank Gifford, hmm. the football great. Oh, yeah. Uh, and having lunch with Ethel Kennedy. I mean, go figure. Oh, Ethel Kennedy, the, the mother of uh, John F. Kennedy and those. No, no. She no. was the wife of uh, Robert Kennedy. Oh, okay. And uh, anyway, Frank Gifford said, did you bring your lunch? I said, as a matter of fact, I did. And we got to talking. It turned out he was a striper fisherman uh, oh, in wow. Connecticut. So we had lunch. I wrote a story. And I had a picture of the great fisherman on the party boat. His name was Eddie Dulles. And he worked uh, as the walrus keeper at the Coney Island Aquarium, and then uh, had some pictures of Michael in the kitchen shaking pans, you know, looking very top chefy. 
And uh, the Times gave me, oh, maybe two-thirds of a page for that. And I got so much of a response, I said, I should write about food, too. Hmm. So I started writing about food, done many cookbooks in the years since, written for Food and Wine, Condé Nast Traveler, and so on. And uh, I wrote many more outdoors columns and food columns in the Times, but I've written a number of them over, over the years. I edited a book on grilling hmm. for the Times. And uh, so I've been, I became a food writer as well as an outdoor writer. Right. Right. Yeah, that is amazing. And, and you mentioned so food leaping off the page like your name does. Well, why, does why, do, why does food leap off the page? Is it because everybody loves kind of eating and everybody does it? Or why is that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's struggling. I mean, I can tell you last night I grilled up some steaks and uh, and I'm probably maybe one of the worst cooks out there. I'm pretty good camping because, you know, when you're camping, everything tastes good. But I think a lot of people struggle with cooking. Do you find that too, that like when you wrote these uh, pieces with food, did you go really basic? Did you kind of do basic everything in between or how did that look? I covered the whole spectrum. Mm. I tend to go uh, more elemental. But I've learned tricks of the trade from you know, some of the world's great chefs. Hmm. Uh, your listeners may know, I guess maybe the most famous book I have done that sort of overlaps into outdoors is I did uh, Seven Fires with Francis Malman. Hmm. And he became a big star. You know, he's a wood fire cook. He became a big star on uh, on Netflix. I did a book on tailgating uh, with John Madden, hmm. Coach John uh a book that i really really love is a few years ago i did it with a guy named ned baldwin the book's called how to dress an egg and it's about a lot more than eggs and he's just a real great natural born chef who you know earned his bones in some great restaurants he's learned how to like take things that people love to do in the home and find ways just to get the most flavor with the least fuss out of them uh his roast chicken everybody who's made that roast chicken i mean everybody has told me they'll never do it another way oh wow uh i published a number of the fish uh, recipes in fly lords oh yeah um readers can find them there oh yeah yeah those are in fly lords okay we'll get some links out we'll we'll check into the fly lords um uh, to those recipes and then so john madden you mentioned too i mean it sounds like you've connected with a lot of famous people big names over your career is is the new york times do you go back to that as a big reason for a lot of these well i guess you can go back to lampoon it feels like throughout your whole career you've really been in the spotlight how, how is that has that been just lucky or have is that what you were going for from the start well you can start with journalists are very lucky because they get a free pass into so many worlds and to people at a level of uh, celebrity or renown that you normally wouldn't run into i think Every you know career journalist I know, you know has their roster of, of famous people. Uh, I had a parallel career producing television with my brother, and uh, a lot of comedy specials. And as I said, we created the Mark Twain Prize, and then a few years later, we created the Gershwin Prize with the Li- Library of Congress, and we did a number of shows on PBS with them. Uh, you know, tribute shows, uh, uh, Paul McCartney, Carol King, um, Steve Wonder, Paul Simon. So I guess I, 
I ran into my share of uh, famous people. Mm-hmm. Um, by and large, they're not the easiest folks to deal with. But if you recognize they're famous for a reason and defer to them, you'll get something good from them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, do you, you kind of do when working with uh, Paul Simon or any of these other folks, John Madden, is it just kind of like you go in there working with them like they're just uh, another person? And you're kind of, uh, you know, learning from them and their specialty or how have you been successful doing that? Well, I have learned from everyone, but I think what you really want to do is get the most out of them and what they do in the way that connects with the audiences that know them. I mean, they all have a special gift. And so if you recognize that and create a situation, whatever it takes to make them feel comfortable and and trust that you're going to present them at their best uh, or the best you can, you'll get something. It, it can be torturous. You know, a lot of people are real perfectionists. And, you know, by the time you get to take 100, you know, you go, is this ever going to end? But <laughs> you know, the result can be good. Yeah, this is awesome. So I just want to highlight two Nick Lyons. We had him on the podcast back in episode 202, which was one of my favorites. Nick was one of those guys that did a bazillion things all at the same time. And it was amazing to hear his story, but it sounds like you're kind of on a similar line as Nick's. You did a lot in your career. One of the things I guess this maybe is the newest thing, your book that's out there, uh, the catch of a lifetime. Do you want to give us a little, um, kind of synopsis on that and tell folks what they can expect? I think you've probably had a bunch of these people or some famous writers in this book as well. Do you want to talk about that book? Yeah. Um, I never loved a, a book that I've done more than that. It came along during COVID. And, you know, I wasn't doing a lot of traveling like the fish. Um, it's a real life raft. It kept me connected with the fly fishing world. And I will say, that's where I discovered Fly Lords, and it was a real life raft. Um, so I had done <clears throat> this book called Green Fires with Francis Malman. And it was, you know, it was the third book I'd done with him, and it, it gets harder <laughs> as you go with a chef. Mm. Um, you get the cream in the first book. And, you know, you get their greatest hits and then some. Anyway, I was on the phone with uh, uh, Leah Ronan, uh, the publisher at Artisan and Workman. And I said, you know, this book was a heavy lift. You owe me a me book. Uh, and I kind of fool myself. And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to write through Patagonia with fly rod and fork. And uh, they said, well, we don't don't want to do that, but you fly fish, huh? Uh, People tend to see you, Mm -hmm. you know, only the way they know you. I said, well, matter of fact, I do. So they said, we want to do this. We have this series, a man and his guitar, a man and his car, a man and his watch. You know, we think that could really fit in with this series. And I said, well, I said, well, yeah, but I think a man and his rod uh, <laughs> sounds, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And also, it doesn't include the biggest biggest growth area in the sport, which is women. Mm. So luckily, or by happenstance, I came up with this idea, the catch of a lifetime. And I wrote to people, you know, I wrote to Nick, I wrote, you know, wrote to John McPhee, I, I wrote to, wrote to, uh, people I knew, and then some I didn't, and then I can we can talk about that too because that was very rewarding. Hmm. And I said, "Here's what I want you to do. I don't want to know why fly fishing makes you 
you know, at one with the universe, right? Necessary. Uh, or the biggest fish you caught. No. Um, I just want to know if I say the word fly fishing, where do you go in your head? Tell me about that scene and tell me about an encounter with a fish. Uh, and I, I got a whole variety of things and they're, they're short pieces. I mean, I mean, Carl Hyacin's a few, a few of them were longer, like 1100, 1200 words, but most of them are in the five to 700 word category. And like I said, it was a, lucky to come up with that formula because people were able to follow it and give me a great variety of things. But also keeping them short, I think was really good because, you know, when you read longer fishing stories, they all sort of start to sound the same. You know, it's like reading long sex scenes. <laughs> you really <laughs> just want get to get to the chase. <laughs> um, so I think that was wonderful. And uh, Artisan let me uh, pick all the photographs. And I went to all the greats, uh, known and unknown in the field. And that was terrific. Not surprisingly, um, my Times column had some reach. Uh, I heard, I wrote to people, you know, just, you know, took a flyer and wrote uh, to folks, and apparently they knew knew my column. So I I got, uh, well, McPhee I'd written about in the Times, uh, Mark Kurlansky, Hyacin, uh, David James Duncan, um, Rachel Maddow. Mm. I read that she was a fly fisherman. And I know enough about showbiz that you don't go uh, straight to them or to their production office. I knew she wrote a book. So I wrote to her literary agent and I sent out a bunch of uh, letters like that to some famous folks and, uh, you know, didn't think more about it. And I, I didn't hear back from uh, Rachel's people. And then two months later, this uh, great story really crisp, really knowledgeable about catching a pike on a fly comes in from, from Rachel Maddow. So hmm. it's great. Wow. There were also people not as widely known who really just came up with the goods. Uh, I read about a woman named Katie Kahn, C-A-H-N, and uh, she sort of become, gained uh, uh, you know, a foothold on the fly fishing imagination. So you, I've seen her in some commercials. She's an ambassador for a lot of things. And she's a woman who, she was a white water guide on the Chituga, mm. which has class everything rapids. And uh, at some point she got cancer. Mm. And she wrote about or talked about how fly fishing helped her out of that. And uh, I'm also uh, a cancer survivor. You know, we both had serious mm -hmm. stuff. And so it really clicked with me, and I, I called her up, and we got a great story from her about how fly fishing touched her and continues to touch her. Uh, and she works uh, a lot with the group for casting with recovery. Yeah, yeah, they're people, big. you know, burdened with that disease. Yeah. Uh, so Katie did a good piece. Um, there's a a guy named Val Kropanuki. I I never can pronounce it right. <laughs> And I, he's got a website called VK Steelworks. Uh, v is in Victor K Steelworks. And if you look at it on Instagram, he ties these amazing creations out of fly tying materials, but they're not flies. You know, he creates sort of sculptures out of them, so to speak, feathers and fur. And they're just captivating. Uh, American Museum of Fly Fishing had an exhibit of his last year. 
And he also makes reels uh, that are just these uh, brutalist reels, uh, the brutalist school of art. And uh, they're also pretty amazing. And uh, I guess I'd been working up in Maine on a cookbook and driving back, I just dropped him a note and asked if I could uh, come in and see him. He lives near uh, Weston, Connecticut, uh, if I remember right. Went and saw his house. You know, very cool workshop. Uh, he's a high school uh, arts teacher. And he makes these things. Not really known as a writer. So together through an interview and my editing and going back and forth with him, we came up with this piece. It's called Rain Blind. And I sent the, mag uh, the manuscript to a few friends, Nick among them, uh, Henry Hughes, a uh, great writer, mm -hmm. uh, Steve Sautner, who uh, uh, wrote the Times column as well. And people said, wow, that rain blind story about the great blue heron. So when you get a response like that, you go, you know, the universe is saying something to me. So I put that one first in the book even though no one heard of this guy as a writer. Uh, I'm very happy with it. So that was a, a lovely one to come across. Mm -hmm. uh, another one I just thought that was spectacular. I, I love them all. I mean, Yeah, it's like right, it's right. You could probably say, and how many there were in total? There were 70? 73. There was some th through one person in X, this word got out there. Uh, I got in contact with a woman named Paige Wallace. And she's a photographer, uh, a video maker. And uh, she wrote a piece called May I Have This Dance. And it's so much the kind of a thing that I felt really came from a woman's perspective. And uh, it was about, she compared, she likes to dance, do what's called swing dancing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she compared dancing with a new partner with hooking into a great trout <laughs> and the kind of subtle moves and counter moves you make. And it was really just terrific, just terrific. And uh, I, I sent it to Joan Wolf, who mm -hmm. also wrote a really terrific story. And Joan said, oh, you know, oh, gosh, that is really wonderful. It's great to see women writing stuff like that. So yeah. I passed that to uh, Paige and it made her day as it made mine right this is good well on this book do you think if you compared say and i think about this sometimes on the podcast you know having people that are kind of nobody's heard of or maybe not as well versus the famous people how do you think this book would have done if it would have been basically a bunch of people that were kind of no namers versus the famous people you know do you think if you would have had one or the other it would have made the book a lot different you know sold more copies what are your thoughts there well, it's too late to know what the sales are. I think they're going well, um, you know, but you can really uh, ride a, ro a a manic roller coaster if you look at your Amazon thing every day. Oh, yeah. So I don't, I really don't, I, I think it helped get noticed, you know, within the community. Yeah. You know, Kirk D for Trout Unlimited, you know, wrote the review of a lifetime as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he called it a book for the ages. So mm -hmm. I just don't know why people picked it up. Um, I think once you're into it, I don't think the big names mean much to the reading more than the new discoveries do. 
but it's hard to say. And of course, the photographs are just terrific. You know, Val Atkinson, Nick Price, Andy Anderson, um, McCalla Elliott. Just, you know, it's a wonderful mix. Um, now, I was really careful. I didn't want to make it like a National Geographic article or a picture book where you just see the pictures and go past the stories. I wanted it to be a literary work. So I guess there were 70 photographs in it, something like that. Um, so there, you know, there are story after story and then a bunch of pictures. And I think it's a good balance. I think you want to read the stories rather than just look at the captions. Yeah. I hope. Right, right. Exactly. And you mentioned the Fly Lords. I think uh, we've had Jared on the podcast as well. He's doing some really great stuff there. What was the, how did connecting with Fly Lords change, uh, you know, kind of your trajectory with what you had going? During COVID, I discovered Fly Lords and I just love the attitude. I love the uh, range of things they covered. And uh, so how did we get in touch? I don't know. Maybe I posted some things or they posted some things and we wrote to each other. Mm. And, uh, you know, these it's a, it's a group that's uh, of fly fishers who are considerably younger than I am. And it's really great. I have found that in cooking books and in fly fishing books. You know, every five years or so, there's just a new wave of people. And I've been able to connect to that through my work. And Jared and I really hit it off. I've done a number of things for them. I just worked with them on a new uh, video series they're doing called Flavor on the Fly, hmm. uh, where they, uh, as a host, they have a fellow named Ranga Pereira, who's a private chef out in Bozeman. And uh, we shot a, an episode in my backyard and on Jamaica Bay out by Kennedy Airport catching bluefish. So hmm. I'd say we're, it's been a, one of those friendships spawned by the internet. Uh, that's been really cool. Yeah. I think that's a great thing. It's like a mutual kind of, um, you know, you, you guys are both kind of seeing benefits from it, right? I mean, Jared obviously is connecting, just like here, we're connecting with you. You're providing value for our listeners you know, and at the same time, you know, Jared's getting the word out to you, maybe to some younger people who don't know about your stuff. And it kind of works both ways. Absolutely. They've been really just terrific uh, cheerleaders for my work. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I like all the guys. Yeah, that's right. And, and I don't know all the guys. I know I've met Jared and a couple of folks there, but uh, no, we, we definitely, uh, yeah, Fly Lords is, uh, they're doing some good stuff. It's pretty good. Um, so let's go down that cooking uh, track a little bit there. So you've got also a number of books, right, in cooking. Can you give us, um, I don't want to copy what you're doing exactly at Fly Lords, but as far as some, you know, some fish recipes, what do you tell somebody if they're thinking like, hey, I want to learn about, do you, is there a book you point them to or how do they get better at, you know, some of these grilling recipes potentially? For cooking fish, uh, really easy, relatively fail safe. I got to say that uh, the book that I did called How to Dress an Egg with Ned Baldwin is just the best. Hmm. For example, if you want to make a thick piece of fish, like a two inch filet of cod or salmon, you boil, I think uh, for a pound and a half, you cut it up like into six ounce portions and uh, you boil some water, uh, you salt the fish that tightens the flesh a little bit. You boil some water. Like I think it's a uh, two or three quarts of water. Uh, when it comes to the boil, you turn it off, you put the fish in it, you leave it for four or five minutes 
and you take it out and it's flaky moist and done wow um yeah it's great that's it that's it whole deal that's it always works works like a charm uh if you want to get you know grill fish uh on cast iron um so it gets crispy skin you uh dry the skin well again i always salt before i put something on because that helps the flesh absorb the salt and you you put it in oil which uh, uh as ned baldwin the chef i did the book with says the oil is more than a slick less than a puddle <laughs> and you press it down with a spatula when you make that first contact so it keeps it from uh curling and uh that'll pretty, pretty much give you that crispy skin that restaurants get mm. now trick that i learned from a great french chef named michel richard um who i did a couple books with um if you really want to make it not stick and you're not too sure your technique wondra flour that's granulated uh white flour um if you just press the, the that outside skin in, in the wondra and then put it in the hot oil uh, and press it down has less stickability mm. another just insanely great recipe that's really impressive i did with uh, francis malman in the book seven fires i also wrote this up in the new york times it's for a whole striped bass encased in salt and it's kind of a no-brainer you take a well we're not well, let me just say we're not cooking striped bass these days because it's a fishery endangered but a really big blue fish a salmon uh a weak fish or sea trout a redfish i've done it with redfish take a big sheet pan if you need to cut the tail off the fish do that i uh, just put some tin foil around it you put like a layer of wet salt like when you're burying someone in sand in the beach about an inch thick on the bottom of the sheet pan put the fish on top of it put some potatoes around it uh maybe some carrots and then cover it with moist sand like you're doing someone at the beach stick it in a really hot oven for 55 minutes you know if it's a, a bigger fish or you can stick a thermometer in it to, mm -hmm. just like you would a roast and you take it out and you crack open the, the the salt crust and it steams up and then you just peel off the skin and uh you know like with a pie pie server you take off serving sizes so it's really dramatic and it could be thanksgiving dinner or christmas or easter because it's a big dramatic thing that can feed a lot of people and uh it's different so like i said uh, you can find that in seven fires you can find that in the new york times uh and i can send you a link for that yeah That'd be great. These are these are great tips. Perfect. And did you cover? It sounds like you covered a lot in the cooking. Did you? Uh, can you give us a, maybe a tip or two on grilling a a steak? How would you you know anything to come to mind there? Well, two things. First, hanger steak you can do it inside or outside. It's a really forgiving cut of meat, and it doesn't need a a, a big charred crust on it. Again, that recipe is in uh, how to dress an egg mm -hmm. and. New York Magazine called it the best steak in New York. I'm always a little skeptical about the best pizza, the best bagel, right. the best, but it's really good. Now, grilling outside, I went to the Mercado del Puerto in uh, Montevideo, Uruguay, 
which is where I was working on this book with Francis there in, in Patagonia in Argentina. And I probably tried a hundred steaks. And I would say, I would come and I would say, someone make me a steak, like a, like a strip steak, you know, like an inch and a half thick, about a pound, which is the size I'm going to tell you about now, which I think is a pretty standard size. And I would, they would make me a steak and I would, you know, you can't eat a hundred steaks. Uh, even if you spread it out over time, I would take a bite. I would pay for the whole thing. I would cut off a piece, taste it, until I found the one that I liked. You know, I would give the part that I hadn't cut off to like there was a couple of street musicians there, so they got a free steak, mm. steak uh, <laughs> lunch. So basically, you want to make the fire. You want to get it to uh, so so the coals are covered over with ash, and if you hold your hand over it. If you go one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three, that's the way I say it. So however long that took, and if you hold your hand like four inches above the grill, that's it. That's about the right temperature. We wrote this up in the Times too, and uh, it's about the right temperature to cook at. It's uh, it, it'll allow the outside to get a crust and a char on it, and the inside to grill evenly so you get that wall-to-wall pink that's how i like it medium rare Mm -hmm. and it was nine minutes on the initial side seven minutes on the other side i mean that's a lot slower than your average person will make it but that's going to work you know yeah i've done it many times that'll work and are you still uh do you still enjoy uh, are you in the in the kitchen out the cooking a lot is that still something you like doing yeah I love cooking and I love fishing. It's no coincidence that I like those two things together. I mean, both cooking and fishing stem from, you know, a basic drive to find food. Even if you catch and release, the thrill of catching a fish is the thrill of, you know, a person 5,000 years ago bringing home dinner. Um, We release fish because we can. You can't release a deer that you shot. But I do love cooking. This is just me speaking personally. I find that when I fish or when I cook, I'm not aware of the passage of time. Mm. It's like having a dream. You know, you wake up from it and you're back to real life, but you can be cooking for hours or fishing for hours and you're just locked into another way of uh, perceiving the world. Right. And uh, as a gift. Now, you might want like that being a marathon runner. You might like that bicycling. Mm-hmm. You might golfing you know if you can find anything in your life that just gives you some relief from the tiktok of daily life i think you're very fortunate and fishing and food have done that for me right and uh and that's a great point i was just thinking the same thing i think um you know podcasting for me that's kind of you know my thing and i think a lot of times we have guests that come on and, and they feel the same way. Um, so that that's a great point. What do you think with your with your writing? You've written a, a lot of different things over the years. What is the hardest thing for you to write? Is it harder to write a cookbook or a fishing book or article or is it all kind of similar work? Well, writing the Times column just became really easy for me. It's like writing 30-second commercials. You know, I had this metronome in my head. And I know what 900 words feels like. Mm. And I know you can only introduce one or at most two characters in a story. 
that the reader can not be confused by, you know, they're new people to them. Um, I write things in the first person. In other words, the person that you're reading says, I, you know, I went fishing or, you know, I motored up a bank or something. But you try and make that I to be everybody. Mm. So they see as if they were seeing them themselves through your eyes. And a great, great, great piece of writing advice was I was reading the letters of Raymond Chandler, great mystery writer. He wrote The Long Goodbye. Uh, Sam Spade was his character. Humphrey Bogart played in a lot of the movies. And it was in the end of the 40s. And uh, not Sam Spade. Uh, was Sam Spade his? Might have been, but Philip Marlowe was a famous character. And uh, in the end of the 40s, uh, Pell Mell, the cigarettes, Paul Mall um, decided to do a radio show, and he didn't want he didn't want to he didn't want to write it, but he wanted the money. So they hired two writers, and he said, "Here's the thing: if you're writing it with the I character, the first person, never give the I character the last word, mm. because readers know you're doing that, and they figure you know you have control of what they're reading, and you're putting the thumb on it, your thumb on the scale to make yourself." look like the real smart ass um so you can say clever things although you know you shouldn't try to only say you should just you should just tell the story but you can say clever things but as long as you don't give yourself the topper people will stay with you yeah what would be an example of that has anything come to mind where you know you where you followed that advice or a story well, or... um i have to think about yeah. it pretty much I, i'm thinking just the, I mean, the basic example is like, you're, yeah, you're telling a story. I went fishing for, you know, um, you know, rainbow trout and I caught the biggest fish of my life. And instead of doing that, you would say, I went fishing for rainbow trout and bring in some other ending where you're not catching, where you're not fishing with your story. You're talking about somebody else, another character. You're ending it on that. Yeah. Another character could be the fish. All right. Could be the fish. Yeah. And the fish and the fish leaped and amazingly broke me off and lived to find another day. Exactly. Um, I wrote many stories in the Times and in the Big Three about a fellow named Jack Allen, Jack Bass Allen. And uh, I fished with him for 40 years in the Everglades, uh, the Sweetwater Everglades, south of Okeechobee, for largemouth bass in a canoe or a little old, I mean, just no frills John boat back on the Miccosukee Reservation. And people people don't do that. They're all, they're all going for bonefish and tarpon. And we pretty much had it to ourselves. And uh, I loved that guy. He died a few years ago. Mm. Um, but any of my stories about Jack Allen, if you look up Peter Kaminsky, Jack Allen in New York Times, he's there. He's also in a lot of my books. Perfect. And Bass was his uh, original, that was his actual middle name? No, that was how you can find him in the phone book. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So Jack, uh, Jack Allen and, uh, and Peter Kaminsky will we'll look, we'll be looking up, doing a lot of research as we're going here. He was a good friend of Dave Whitlock. Mm -hmm. Him and Lef Lefty Cray used to fish the Juniata, uh, you know, a, a trip of the Susquehanna in Pennsylvania. And they also used to go to Maine just like uh, around spawning season, I think around spawning season, uh, uh, you know, right after black flies. Mm. Nice. 
Well, Peter, I, I want to start to take it out of here, and we have this little section um, we call our, um, you know, kind of our author shout out. And I want to get a, a, an author that's maybe influenced you over your time. But this one today is presented by the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. Uh, Bo has got these great shows in, in Virginia and Texas, and we're trying to get people that are in that region to head out to Virginia. So for those listening, if you haven't grabbed your ticket yet, head out and. Uh, and, uh, and check that out. Um, but give me your, you know, I've talked to a number of writers over the years and, and heard many influence. You've talked about some of the people that have influenced them, you know, um, Nick Lyons and others. Is there a writer that really sticks out to you and you think like, hey, that person was either early in your career or during was a big influence for you? Among my influences, Nick Lyons certainly ranks near the top. Mm. His, his writing uh, really involved you was never chest thumping or bragging and uh it is very clear you know exactly where you are and what you're doing with nick um aj mclean mm. uh, al mclean who i got to know in his later years i just felt his writing again cut to the bone and uh drew you in and you wanted to be there of course hemingway yeah uh, the, the simplicity of hemingway and uh, I got to go to Cuba uh, with his son, Jack, who was a great fly fisherman, and his granddaughter, Margot, to make a film about Papa. So I had great experiences learning about this crazy guy's life. Mm. Uh, but the way he writes, you just can't hold a candle to it. It's just he he, he gets you there. So yeah. I really like guys. Um I love Raymond Chandler, not a fishing writer, a mystery writer, but I sort of like his uh, wise guy and self-deprecating way of writing. Uh, Turgenev. Hemingway loved Turgenev. I love Turgenev, uh, mm. the Russian writer. Mm -hmm. Most famous sons, yep. but he also wrote a book called A Sportsman's Sketches or A Sportsman's Notebook. And that's about a guy who's kind of a, you know, a small game hunter uh who makes his way from you know estate to estate and village to village and writes about it and it's not about fishing but the way he writes about his th this blood sport and the people that he meets and the lives they lead that had a big influence on me well yeah that's a that's a good list i i highlight go back to thinking about Hemingway. We, we had an episode um recently episode 513 and it was the life and works of ernest hemingway mark uh, torino uh, has a podcast, um, the one true podcast. And, uh, he broke down a lot of the stories from Hemingway. And he talked about that, that writing, how it was, how Hemingway kind of let you, um, he kept it simple. So you can kind of decide or figure it out for yourself. Is that something that you uh, tried to do in some of your writing? Did you think about that or did that uh, come naturally? Well, well, first of all, let me say, maybe tell him about me and I can do a show with him. I have a lot of Papa Hemingway stories that people oh, have never heard. Good, good. Um, but Mark Twain said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. <laughs> and uh, I think what Hemingway was able to do, he was able to leave out everything but the really right word. And that right word was so right, it made, it made you see the whole scene. You know, there are kinetic words that just attract our imaginations and take us to places yeah. uh, without the author having to fill in, you know, the white space. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's it. 
Nice. And, um, and, you know, I have a few more, uh, Peter, a few more, uh, kind of random. We like to go in a little, uh, random mix as we, as we head out of here and some questions, but, um, I mentioned that the, the Virginia festival is, do you ever over your time, were you ever going to local events, local fly fishing festivals? Did you ever do any of that, uh, trying to sell books, things like that? Not a ton of it. I should have done more. Yeah. I will say the thing I've written about that I think gets overlooked and certainly you can do it in the Southeast, but you can do it in the Midwest and you can do it in the Northeast is bass fishing on a fly rod. You know, I've done it at the golf course near where my parents used to live in Florida, uh, during COVID a little lake in Connecticut. And it, it just, it's not crowded like trout streams. They're wonderful fish and bass fishing has taken me to places in America that like a New York guy wouldn't normally find himself uh and that's certainly true of i've had so many adventures in the south hmm. that you know i never would have done otherwise then you're talking about uh, mainly smallmouth bass no both oh both yeah jack allen and i fished for largemouth uh i fished for smallmouth all through the ozarks and that's a whole other trip it's just wonderful and timeless and hypnotic and beautiful and just people who go bass fishing uh, in the Ozarks, by and large, go to the big impoundments with their bass boats and fish for largemouth. But those smallmouth streams are just gorgeous. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, bass is always a top uh, speed. You know, obviously fly fishing, a lot of people think trout, especially getting into it. But that's, you've probably seen this too, the amazing thing about how it's evolved. And now you can catch almost anything on a fly rod. But but I think smallmouth and largemouth are definitely top species for a lot of people. So what do you, you know, we talked recipes, we talked some different things here. Um, so let's just go down that track with the recipe. You've got one meal you're going to make, um, during the week, uh, or during the month. What, what is that thing? What's the thing you really love? Okay. Well, this is going back to one that I mentioned. If you want to have a really beautiful, moist, perfectly done fish, poaching it in water that's boiled, uh, and the recipe is in how to dress an egg. It's also on fly lords. That's going to work every time. Then you can decide what you want to do with it. You can make a, a green goddess dressing, and I have that in the book. Um, you can just put some olive oil, flaky salt, and black pepper on it. That doesn't hurt. There's a Spanish thing called romesco. that's kind of made with sherry vinegar and, and peppers. Uh, bell peppers uh, and almonds ground up. Um, you know, take your choice. But I just find the plain old poached fish, poached yep. for four or five minutes and last with some olive oil, really works well. You can make uh, a, a filet in a pan with a lot of butter and you just keep spooning the butter over the side that's not on the pan. And uh, that's a classic restaurant technique. It's hard to do for like more than two people, hmm. um, but that's a good way. I just think the poached fish is just yep. the way to go. Poached fish. It seems like I've always think about the butter is that like, who doesn't love a lot of butter? Do, do, do you feel like in restaurants, that's a key to a lot of these? Do you think people, when you go out and eat, they're just piling a bunch of butter on there? Or I guess it depends on where you go, but what's your take on the butter question? Butter's great. Yeah. Uh, better with butter. Yeah. It's also bacon. Olive oil is wonderful too. Um, I didn't mention that fish grill up well. Uh, mm. It has to be, the fish has to be dry and then oiled if you're going to grill it. Otherwise, it's going to stick. Tell you the truth though, if it sticks, 
don't worry about it. You're not in a beauty contest. You just want to cook the fish through. Yeah. Uh, and they grill up well. Whole fish, like in a grill basket, can be really beautiful. You know, you put some slits in it and stick. I, I like like with um, uh, with whiting or, you know, mackerel, smaller fish, bluefish, putting slits in the fish. You know, you, you, you got it. Mm. Scale it. And sticking some tarragon and a lemon peel, uh, lemon wedge in the slits, that really grills up well, too. And uh, I've written about that, hmm. uh, and I can send you some recipes. Okay. When you go all through this, you know, you, you'll have some TKs. You, you want some recipes from me, just write me, and then I'll know what to look for and send to you. Okay. Yeah, and where's the – give people an email. Is that okay if people, like, reach out to you by email? I think it's best uh, if, if – if well, what do you think? If you're on Instagram, I think social will be fine too. That'd be probably be easier because we don't, yeah, we don't want to, you know, flood uh, too much there. Uh, so it's my Instagram is uh, Peter Kaminsky one. So that's P E T E R K A M as in Michael, I N as in Nancy, S K Y, the number one. That's it. Perfect. And we'll have a link to that as well. So, and we talked about a number of famous people. I mean, and lots I know you, we haven't talked about. I think Tom Brokaw maybe you had a connection with there as well. But when you think about uh, maybe can you give us one story? I mean, this is kind of putting you on the spot. Any over the time, one story that comes to mind of uh, some famous person you knew and a story of you either fishing or just in life in general. Um, I'll let you think about that for a sec as I give you the next question, unless you have something on the tip of your tongue. Well, showbiz people, we've talked fishing. Yep. But I haven't seen that much. You know, Robert Redford was on a show that I did. We talked about fishing out in uh, Utah and Montana. John Candy, who I worked with a lot, mm-hmm. we used to go fishing a bunch. Jimmy Kimmel. Um, if you ask me, I'm trying to remember if I ever fished with anybody famous. Well, Margot Hemingway, we used to fish. But perhaps the renowned person who I fished with that really stands out so clearly in my mind was Lee Wolf. Mm. I met Lee Wolf a few years before he died. I was writing about him for Sporting Classics. I spent a week with him and Joan up in Lou Beach. We flew around the Beaver Hill in his plane. I saw all his uh, his films he'd done over the years. And we, Lee Wolf and I went fishing on wagon tracks, a very famous pool on the Beaver Kill. Uh, not far from uh, where the Hendrickson was invented. And uh, we caught a bunch of fish. And then we just had done it and we're taking a break. And we put our rods down and we were sitting on the bank. And we started to pick up stones, sort of flat stones, and skip them across the stream, as you do when you're a youngster. And we just had a blast. And I just, out of nowhere, Lee, talking about fishing, said, this wonderful sport. And he gave me a box of flies that I still have, of course, that he had tied. So I guess that's my, to me, that's the real touch with greatness and celebrity that I've had in fishing. Other famous people are just like me or you. They're just folks who fish. And I guess you're aware of their stars. But, uh, oh, I fished with Jimmy Buffett. We went to uh, Cuba. Oh, there you go. Okay, so I was making a film about Ernest Hemingway, and uh, I knew that Jimmy um, had written uh, a song, an album, Havana Daydreaming. So I was in Key West 
and uh, I chartered a clipper ship to go down to Havana through a mutual friend. I got in touch with Jimmy and I said, uh, well, if you'd like to uh, pilot a clipper ship into Havana Harbor, now's your chance. And uh, so we did that. And uh, then we fished with Hemingway's boat captain, Gregorio Fuentes, for Marlin right off of Havana. And uh, Jimmy did that with us for a few days. Mm. So that's my favorite, famous, wow. famousest person story. And he was a really good guy to fish with. That's pretty amazing. And and uh, do you, with all the years when you look back, do you ever kind of pinch yourself and say, wow, this like all the connections and people and think like, you know, how did this happen? Or do you feel like you put in a lot of work and this is, you're not surprised? I honestly don't know. I just, I just know that fishing, both fishing and being a journalist just gives you a pass into a world, you know, you would not otherwise have been in. And just like with writing with chefs, when I write about great anglers, uh, I'm writing about them. So they know I'm not competing with them. I want to learn, learn with them. And so if, if, if you're not going one-on-one to catch fish with, uh, Al Cucci or, uh, uh, Lee Wolf, um, and just there to hear what they have to say. Uh, well, well, people do like to talk about themselves anyway, but yeah. you know they're just free with it. They're not. They're not in competition with you. Yeah, that's right. Nice. Well, I think uh, we will. I guess the big question here is: you do have a lot of books um, in every all these topics we talked about. Where is the best place if people want to track down kind of your all the work you've done? Is there one place they can go to, or what's your recommendation? Well, of course, Amazon has a lot of them some of them are out of print but you can still get them okay barnes and noble has a lot uh bookshop.org it's independent booksellers you can find them through all of them uh your local bookstore can order the stuff that's in print Hmm. um i'm hopeful that the new book the catch of a lifetime uh i'm hopeful that independent fly shops uh will offer it Mm mm-hmm I'm trying to work out a discounted deal for them. I think it'd be really cool if uh, fly shops made a, a couple of dollars on it. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, do you want to leave us with your uh, catch of a lifetime uh, story here? Do you have something that I'm not sure if, you know, I'm sure you have a few, maybe you've already talked about it today. No, I haven't. Well, like I said, the what I asked people to do was hear the words fly fishing and write about the encounter that comes to mind first. So it wasn't a 26 pound, uh, sea run shroud, uh, a size 12 Prince nymph in Patagonia. Uh, it wasn't an 11 pound bonefish on Christmas Island. I go back to a morning on the Esopus Creek in the Catskills. Mm. And it was quite early one morning. And I went to the local bait shop and got myself a cup of coffee, a pack of Marlboros and a Clark bar. <laughs> and, uh, I bushwhacked about a quarter of a mile through this berry tangle. Uh, it was late spring to a pool that I knew on the Esopus that had a big glide at the tail out. Uh, eased myself into the stream and got about a third of the way across the stream. And then there was a, a few rising fish going up the bank that I'd come in from. And I put, I believe it was an Osabo wolf down and, uh, you know, the mist was just uh, lifting off the water and uh, fish took it hmm. 12, 13 inches. Uh, I've certainly caught bigger trout. It was a plump 12 or 15 inches. And the way he just came up and 
got tight on it. Uh, that's all the magic of the sport. Um, wow. time you get in that, uh, that zone, uh, spiritually, you're doing fine. Yeah, that is, there's something about, and we're, we're working on a cat skills, um, event. Um, hopefully this next year we're going to be probably focusing on something around dry fly fishing, but what is it for you about the cat skills? I mean, it sounds like that's kind of been your world. You, you know that well, why, what is it about the cat skills that makes it so, I mean, I know there's a lot of history there, but other than the history, just the area, the natural area, what makes it so unique? Or is it not that much different than say a, the Henry's fork or some other place where there's a, you know, a great dry fly fishing? Well, for dry fly dry fly, dry fly, the east and west branch of the Delaware, there's no place that I've ever been that has more consistent hatches all through the season. And there's no place uh, where the fish are more challenging. If you can catch them on the west branch, you can catch them on Henry's Fork, you can catch them on the Missouri, mm. you can catch them on Test or the Itchen. Uh, it really is... Uh, you know, an advanced uh, graduate course in dry fly presentation. Um, the Asobis was where I learned to fish. That's where Lee Wolf invented the Wolf series. Uh, started it there with Dan Bailey, and Dan finished out the, the series of ties. And it was I, I had rented a cabin up there, and uh, it, it, was, it was great. Hmm. You know, they had the, the classic... Uh, progression of mayfly hatches like art flick wrote around mm -hmm. wrote about in a guide uh that's another book just put it on your list it's so clear and simple yeah art flick that was reminds again that's art flick's book what was the title the streamside guide yep that's it and uh so it's just beautiful the catskills are not real mountains geologically speaking they're eroded high plateaus just like the grand canyon although they've been eroding for some millions of years more, hmm. which gives them a rounded shape. But you can look from mountain to mountain and see those kind of horizontal lines running across, you know, the tree growth. So they have their own beauty to them. Uh, as what the, the Catskill School of Painting, you know, Bierstadt and uh, Cole, that's really the beginning of American, you know, big landscape painting, you know, later about Yosemite and all. Um, but it's very, very beautiful. It's a it's it's a, a dependable cold water fishery, although with uh, global warming we may be catching dorado there soon. Right. Um, but it's uh you know it's it's um it's productive. It's within three hours of my house. It's beautiful, but I will say in the last 15, 20 years, saltwater fly fishing, even in Brooklyn. I'm going tomorrow. It's just insane in the spring and the fall. Yeah. Stripers, albies, uh, bluefish. It's an incredible fishery. Yeah, I hear you. No, I, I think you guys are at uh, the morning. We're heading to New York. Uh, that's a great thing as you're talking about that. We're heading to New York in uh, December to go for steelhead in the South Shore Lake Erie. So like New York, the more you get into it, the more you realize New York is, it's got, you know, the the greatest city in the in the planet, right? But it also has this great fishing and diversity, like diversity of opportunities. So nice, Peter. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the thing about New York is there is great diversity of wildlife, you know, at the foot of my street. I mean, there's all the game fish, there's dolphins, there's whales, mm. there's seals. There's, you know, endless convoys of waterfowl. There's uh, mo monarch butterflies. I mean, we've pretty much, you know, shot out everything on land, 
but it's a real, you know, Serengeti sampler um, in our coastal waters. And it always shocks people. Yeah. What part of New York are you, are you in? I live in Brooklyn. Yeah. In Brooklyn. I have caught blues, uh, stripers, blackfish, uh, weak fish, you know, two blocks from my house, right on the waterfront. Yeah. Wow. Are you a, uh, are you a, a baseball fan or sports? I am a baseball fan. Yeah. What, what's your, what, what is, I'm just uh, team wise. I mean, obviously New York's uh, famous. <laughs> are you a Mets? Or are you a, uh, a, a Yankees fan? You know, I'm a lifelong Yankees fan. Uh, I kind of washed my hands of them this year. When the Mets are doing well, I like that. I'm the same with the, the Giants and uh, the Jets. Yeah. I guess I'm more of a Knicks fan and the jury's still out on the Nets. The Nets, right. Uh, that's about it. That's it? No hockey for you or anything like that? I'm not a hockey guy. I don't know why I, I never... Uh, I have friends who love uh, but it, it never grabbed me. Yeah. Yeah, me neither. I've never, I actually went to a hockey game recently up in Seattle and watched. Uh, it was really awesome. It's just like anything. I think in person, it's always better. Um, but but good. So, okay, Peter. Well, I think we'll leave this uh, uh, some more stories maybe for the next time we can get you on here. And uh, for now, we'll just leave everybody with um, Peter Kaminsky1 on Instagram if they want to connect with you, see what else you have going. And I uh, just want to say thanks for all the time today and all the uh, the great work over the years. We definitely... We'll be following up with you and uh, digging more into your stuff. So until we meet again, thanks, Peter. Thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.